This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 710, Comic Talk. This is Comic Shanigans, episode 710. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is a bit of a short one today, but this is going to be a comic talk slash flashback episode. Um, I've talked a lot in the past of various different episodes and during interviews about kind of my, my history with comics and growing up with comics, etc. Uh, one thing I wanted to kind of talk about today, or just something I've been thinking about, is uh, the idea of, you know, kind of the, the characters and costumes and renditions that kind of end up uh, solidifying in one's mind Uh, specifically when you're younger that really kind of cements who who certain characters are how you envision them and going forward is always kind of going to be how you prefer those characters to be illustrated Um, because I've been thinking about this a lot because as I, you know, start introducing comics more and more to my son, I think about the, the versions of the characters he sees, the costumes he sees. Um, like he does, we don't go through a lot of kind of mainstream comics generally these days. I mean, we we've started with some comics like Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur, and that has kind of connections to other characters in the grander Marvel universe. But generally speaking, we don't we're not reading kind of the more regular mainstream books, partially because I don't know if they're always that uh, appropriate for children as much as they were back in the day. Um, but you know. Try to introduce him to different things. I have joked in previous episodes that I have been watching, I've been reading with Zach uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths from 1984 um, which is obviously a super, you know, old story at this point. Um, so it has kind of big concepts and, and, you know, some that could be a little bit upsetting, obviously, as some famous deaths, but just an interesting story in general and it's kind of what comics can be, even though there's a lot of info dumping at times and a lot of purple prose sometimes, but um, it's got, got this big grand scope that in some ways you can only really do in comics to the, this, a certain breadth. And it does make me realize, you know, like he sees some of these versions of these characters and like the other day he was like, um, we were going through, I think, issue three or four and Supergirl was there. Uh, but not just with Supergirl there. It was a Supergirl from pre-crisis who wore a bandana or a headband. And uh, she was like, so Zach was like, why is Supergirl wearing a headband? Like, that's weird. Um, because that's just not something he ever really was part of. He's, he's not used to seeing that. Um, in fact, I'm actually surprised that he's even used to the regular Supergirl costume because, you know, I've, I've shown him Justice League Unlimited, and then that you have the kind of the classic late 90s, early 2000s Supergirl before Kara Zor-El was brought back into DC Comics, and you have the version with the miniskirt and the white t-shirt. Um, so that's kind of the, the first Supergirl, Supergirl he would have seen, but now he's, we're reading Crisis, and he sees the Supergirl with a, with a headband on, um, which is interesting. And then again, my first impression of any version of Supergirl when I was growing up was not Supergirl at all. It was Matrix. It was uh, the shapeshifter who, you know, and again, as a kid, I hadn't read that original story. I knew of it, or I, at least there was editor's notes kind of describing it. But, you know, when I was reading Reign of the Superman back in, what, 92, 93, um, I didn't know much about Supergirl. And uh, it, it's interesting that I, the core idea, the reason why they ended up bringing back the Carousel version of the character is a lot of people were like, well, at the end of the day, 
because of there was a Supergirl movie back in the day during the Chris Reeves kind of uh, continuity, people got used to the idea that Supergirl is the cousin of Superman, and that you have this comic in the you know in the late nineties to early two thousands where that's not the case. It was like oh you know oh well Supergirl's actually a protoplasmic matrix who bonded with this girl and may or may not have been part of an angel or at some point. That's kind of batshit crazy. That's that's really outside the realm of you know that's comics being comics, which is cool. But if you're trying to you know kind of uh, boil characters down and I feel like DC did a lot of this in the early 2000s is kind of boring um, boiling characters down to their kind of bare essentials and kind of resetting certain status quos um, it's why you know uh, even though you might get Dick Grayson as Batman it's never going to be permanent because Bruce Wayne is Batman it's kind of the same underlying logic is actually behind why Dan Jurgens. Uh, if you read the Life uh, Life of Riley archives that's online, you can find it. Uh, there's a description, I can't remember, I think Len Greenberg was talking about it, but the, basically the idea that Dan Jurgens came on to write Spider-Man books, and then he's writing Ben Riley instead, and then he kind of says to them very early on, he's like, people don't know, people are never going to be like, oh yeah, Ben Riley, he's Spider-Man. Peter Parker is always going to be Spider-Man. And for better or for worse, that's kind of the issue that you have. It's it's fascinating which characters that's been true for. Like, and you, you've seen in comic book history characters where that wasn't a defining trait. Like, the fact that an entire, well, I would say almost a couple of generations grew up where Wally West was their Flash. Um, you know, you had the people who grew up on, you know, right after Crisis and Crisis Infinite Earth, Barry Allen's gone, now you have Wally West, and people grew up on that version of Wally West for a few years, and then you have Mark Wade coming on, and he kind of revolutionizes and pushes the character and adds power sets that you'd never seen before in a, in a Flash book and changes the character forever. Uh, in a good way, and it's been reverberated in every other iteration of the character since, but now it's been passed on to Barry. But it's just interesting that there was an entire generation where Wally West was the Flash, and then eventually, and this is kind of the problem with sometimes with comic creators, is that you have people who grew up on certain versions of characters, and they want to bring those back, which is fine to a degree. We all, uh, I can understand that. I, if I got handed the, the you know the reins to writing a comic book right now, it might you know restore Ben Riley to feeling like Ben Riley. It might feature the Slingers, you know, stuff that I loved and would love to see back in comics. But that doesn't make it a good comic. That doesn't make it a good idea. Um, that's a whole other thing, right? It's a whole other animal. So it's just and Joe Quesada is kind of a emblematic of this. Is that you know when he was growing up, Peter Parker wasn't married. So he made sure that Peter Parker wasn't married anymore. But there was a generation like who grew up who, from what, 1988, 87? I can't remember exactly when the wedding was. But basically 20 years where they were married. And so I'm used to this idea of Mary Jane and Peter Parker are together and they're married. And obviously because they were married in the comics, the movies have definitely leaned into this. Um, I mean, less, I guess less so recently, but only because it was done in the first Raimi trilogy. And that kind of solidified this idea that you use these characters, um, that these two are, are going to be together. The fact that, you know, you don't really have Peter dating anyone else in the same Raimi films. He goes, you know, from basically just being a nerd to being with MJ. And then, you know, there's really nothing in between. There's that weird girl who brings him cake or whatever, and there's Betty Brandt, but there's never really anything there. Um, so it's just interesting that the comics, because they felt like they're I probably not beholden to the... Sorry, that the movies felt maybe not beholden to the comics, but definitely were coming from the comics and said, well, we've got to use this version of the characters. Uh, and it makes sense to have this relationship, whereas uh, Die Hard fans at the time would have been like, well, give us M- give us M- uh, you know, Gwen. Gwen is the way it's supposed to be. Anyways, I'm getting so far afield from what my original kind of thought for the episode was, but I'm, I like the kind of loosey-goosey uh, kind of 
uh, stream of consciousness thought um, that I've done before, and I you know kind of had a, an idea what I was going to talk about, and it's definitely gone in a different direction. Um, but one of the things I have been thinking about is um, one is you know the idea that you know when I close my eyes, what version of Superman do I see? Um, I see Dan Jurgens. I don't physically see Dan Jurgens himself. I see his iteration of Supergirl. Oh, sorry, of Superman. Um, that's because when I, it's interesting. It's not even the first Superman comic I read. Like I, the first Superman comic I read had a cover with John Byrne, and I can't remember all the interiors right now. I think it might have been Jerry Ordway. Now I think about it, and I think I just talked to him about this a couple of months ago. Um, and then the second issue I read was Superman Adventures of Superman. Uh, it was it was also. Um, by uh, oh no, it wasn't by Burn. It was I think by Jurgens at that point. And then there's my my first real recollection of any Superman comic, I believe, was actually um, uh, I want to say Kurt Swan, but that's not the version I see um, when I close my eyes. Uh, that's just not the version of the character that you know, springs to mind. Like I love those versions of the characters. Uh, I was just just looking here. Yeah, from the the first comic I, I re- well, one of the first Superman comics I really have a fond memory for was Superman two twenty from nineteen sixty nine. Uh, at the time, uh, it was uh, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by George Russo's. Um, so good stuff there. Uh, a solid team, that's for sure. Um, but I see Dan Jurgens, and when I think of Batman. That's a tough one for me because I actually don't know if I really have like a definitive Batman in the same way. I have read a lot of definitive Batmans. I've, I've seen Neil Adams and kind of his take on the character. Um, but I mean, I, I kind of and I kind of grew up in a weird period because you know I, you had very differing takes during like Nightfall, which is the, when I first kind of saw some of the stuff for the first time. So I don't know if I have a definitive Batman in the same way. I, I, Jim Lee's definitely an important Batman for me. Um, but I, I don't know if I really have a definitive one in the same way that I do with Superman. Um, my like when I look at this, when I think of Spider Man, like I really do think of a John Romita Jr. or well, no, not no John Romita Jr. I think of Mark Bagley. Mark Bagley is the first real Spider Man that I was like, whoa, uh, him and Tom Lyle. But if I if I was to really look at the version of Spider Man's kind of face that I really like and Peter Parker himself, it would probably be Ron Friends because in and around when I was first reading Maximum Carnage, which is again my first real exposure to Spider Man, uh, I was reading Marvel Tales issues by Ron Friends, which were obviously stylistically very different, and that's you know probably the, the Peter Parker I like most is a homogenization between um, Mark Bagley. And Ron Friends. That being said, I love the John Romita version, and I think uh, both those guys owe so much to that because they're kind of further developing something that had been started, you know, years or years earlier. I, I don't, I never think of you know the Ditko version. That's just not the version that I think of. Uh, I'm trying to think of other superheroes. Wonder Woman again. I don't really have a strong affinity or a perfect image of her. I've seen, I, you know, because I, I never really read her comics. And she didn't visually arrest me in the same way, or maybe people just weren't giving her enough life. Uh, I think Jim Lee is one of the ones, again, when he was writing, doing Hush, was it Hush? Or maybe Superman for Tomorrow, where Wonder Woman really kind of felt bigger than life, and then I really started to like it a lot more. Um, I'm just trying to think of other characters that... Oh, Flash is a really tough one, because... Um, I'm just trying to think, like, what is it about the Flash, or what, what what comes to mind when I think of the Flash? And I don't know if I necessarily have a definitive Flash, but I, I think when I close my eyes and I really think about it, I think Howard Porter's Flash, or a combination between that and Scotty, uh, not Scotty Young, Scott Collins, is probably the one that kind of flashes to mind. That, that was a terrible pun, unnecessary and unexpected, and not something I meant to do. It was very unintentional. Um, but there's just something about that, the way in which the character is drawn. And again, I. 
is it different for me if I'm thinking of Barry and Wally? I'm not even sure. Um, such an interesting character. Um, Green Lantern for me, it's probably, uh, oh my god. You know what? It's probably Dan Jurgens. Uh, it's because Green Lantern showed up in Reign of Superman, and that was definitely had a, a. It was barely there, but that was an impact, and I remember that version of Green Lantern. Uh, but otherwise, if I really think about it, I don't usually think of the Kyle version. Although, if I think of Kyle Rayner, I'm thinking of him as Green Lantern. I'm thinking of Daily Sham. His, I just loved his take on the character. Um, if I'm thinking of Hal, probably thinking of Ethan Van Skyver. Um, when he did, I mean, big reason, obviously, because he did uh, Green Lantern Rebirth, and that was, that felt like that was going to be the visual for the character forever. Now, other characters, other people have done it really, really well as well, like Ivan Reyes, but there's something about him. When I think about X-Men, X-Men is such a complicated one, because I feel like I think of the Jim Lee designs more than anything because of the X-Men animated series. I'm watching it with my son now, and seeing those designs, I'm like, yeah, those that's what the X-Men looks like. That, that's what they feel like to me. That's what they should look like. Uh, not that they always do, but that's generally speaking what I think of um, more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I might think of other artists doing interpretations, but the costumes are most definitely the Jim Lee costumes. And I guess the X-Men differ from a lot of other characters, whereas, you know, Superman, his costume is his costume. Like, there might be some, some minor stylistic differences, but generally speaking, it's the same. Whereas, if you think of a character like Cyclops, he has a lot of definitive, or not definitive, very, very differentiated looks uh, that are held apart from each other. Um, anyways, this was a bit of a stream of consciousness just talking about some of these characters. Um, I hope at some point in the future to have a much longer conversation about, you know, these types of characters and these archetypes that we think of and visual types and, you know, which artists show up maybe on multiple characters that we think of in our mind's eye. Um, like, and, and some characters are so tied to their creators that, you know, they'll, you'll never think of anyone else. Like, if you think of, um, what's his name, Booster Gold. If you don't say Dan Jurgens, I feel like someone needs to slap you in the face because no one does Booster Gold like Dan Jurgens. Dan Jurgens is just... I, I feel like I, I need to have podcasts just about Dan Jurgens. I, I feel like he doesn't get enough respect. At the same time, like I feel like a lot of people love his work and they love what he's done and love his version of Superman, but I feel like he never... People don't talk about it enough. Like I feel like people do respect and love Dan Jurgens, but I don't know if they talk about it enough because he's such an amazing illustrator and has such a great definitive style and... Uh, yeah, and, and it always feels like he's adding something cool and new, and he's got some great anchors that have worked on it with him for so many years, and I just love his work. Anyways, that is my episode today. It's a little bit random, uh, a little bit off the cuff, actually very off the cuff. Um, our next non-review, sorry, non-reviews episode, which will be episode, I guess, 712, uh, should be a conversation with Fabian Nisiesa, as long as uh, scheduling pans out. Uh, talking about, of all things, Spider-Man Lifeline. That's right, Spider-Man Lifeline. If you don't know what it is, don't worry, I don't expect you to, but we're going to talk about it, and we're going to hopefully go into detail on it, and uh, I'm really excited about it, uh, to be able to do a deep, deep dive, and the fact that uh, I can read something or, or remind myself of a book I you know read like 18 years ago, and I can actually send a message to the creator and say, hey, can you, you want to come on the podcast, talk about it? Uh, that is super cool, and uh, something that uh, the podcast is uh, very exciting to me to be able to do those types of things. Anyways, thanks for listening to this episode. You can rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.